Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Grid Forward Chats. Today, Bryce is going to be talking with U.S. Republican Representative John Curtis from Utah's 3rd District, who is the chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. They will be discussing Republican climate priorities, how those goals can be better promoted and incorporated into law, as well as the climate goals of upcoming infrastructure legislation. Enjoy this top-level view of federal climate politics. Welcome to the next episode of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker, here joined by Utah Congressman John Curtis. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Great to be with you. So the congressman is the chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus, as I had mentioned, serves in Utah's third district. Prior to coming to D.C., he was the mayor in Provo City. And Congressman, maybe you can start off with a bit of an overview of what led you to the role um, that you hold now in Congress and uh, tell folks a bit about your background. Thank you. Uh, I've got to tell you, if anybody's familiar with my district, you'll understand uh, my love of this planet, this earth, the outdoors. I have a district that encompasses ski resorts in the north, Moab in the middle, Bears Ears on the end. It's just a a place that you cannot wander without falling in love uh, with our outdoors and, and the beauty of nature. The short version of how I ended up here is I found myself in Congress really, to be honest, confused by the the gap in uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, and wanting to fill that gap and realizing, I think we all care deeply about this earth and as as Republicans and Democrats, and why can't we talk about it better? Why are Republicans so reticent to talk about it? And what can we do about that? When I was mayor, I think a couple of things are important. I actually chaired an organization called Utah Municipal Power Authority, Provo's Municipal Power City that at one point when I took over was 80% reliant on coal. And kind of our growth through that and, and what I learned through that process, I think, has been very important. And in Utah, the, the strong desire for clean air and uh, serving as mayor and being able to work on clean air issues, I think were really good um, preparations for my experience in D.C., and, and uh, now I'm just like pleased and honored to be considered a, a reputable a voice on the topic and on your podcast today. <laughs> Congressman, thank you. I always start with this question. How are you? How are your colleagues in legislature? How are your constituents doing? Well, you know, thank you for asking. I, I've been just really fortunate and blessed. Um, I traveled a lot during COVID because of Congress and I haven't had any um, uh, problem with COVID. My wife hasn't. My children haven't. So really blessed. Uh, the state is, is um, you know, on one hand, we, we, we still haven't dealt with the Delta variant, but on the other hand, we're at 2.6 unemployment, and we have a lot to be thankful for here in the state. And we just need to turn that corner, right, like the rest of the country, turn that corner and get this thing behind us. So let's dive in. So you chair the Conservative Climate Caucus. What are some of the key priorities with this group? I think mission number one is to get Republicans talking about climate. I, I regret that because we're sometimes silent, well, I should admit oftentimes silent, we come across as not caring about the earth and somehow denying the science. And my experience is that's just not true. And I think a lot of it is that Republicans are, are turned off by, by far uh, extreme left policies. And so they choose not to talk about it. And that's a mistake. We, we have a lot of ideas that we want to bring forward that are very, very good for the environment. And um, at the same time, don't kill U.S. jobs. And so mission number one is to get Republicans out in front, aggressive, and talking about this. 
So what efforts have you championed and are you paying especially close attention to around climate, energy transition, advanced grid capabilities and related areas? Well, th- there are many, some large and some small. Um, we we uh, focus a lot on battery storage uh, here in my office. I feel like that's our bottleneck with renewables right now. Unless we figure out the storage problem, we, we can't really go the places that we need to go. We're spending a lot of time on methane in my office right now. We don't have specific legislation, but we know uh, that we need to come up with some answers on, on methane. We look really hard for bills that we can support. We know as Republicans, we're really good at telling people what we don't like. And uh, we're always on the prowl uh, for, for, for bills that we like. I also think it's important uh, and we like highlighting the things that we've actually done well. I think too often in this debate, we, we don't pat ourselves on the back when we've done something well. And the Energy Act of 2020 that at the end of the year passed on a very bipartisan basis is a really good example of that, where we agreed to, to rein in hydrofluorocarbons by 85% here in the United States. And I, I think too often those things go uncelebrated and unnoticed. And we're trying to bring some light to the positive things that are actually happening as well. We took significant note of the Energy Act of 2020 at the end of last year. A lot of it has been authorized, but not appropriated. How do we get some of those key RD&D aspects that are in that package through to fully being realized? Yeah, it's a great question. I think some of uh, people's biggest frustration with Washington, D.C. is our inability to just organize ourselves and get things done. And I think this is a really good example. It's also an example of we've got to be careful that we don't rely on the federal government as our end-all solution, or we'll probably let you down, um, if that makes sense. So we've got to figure out how to get government moving. Uh, We we see this in not just this aspect, but but every aspect uh, of Washington, D.C., and I'm hoping to put pressure, uh, and I, I think we need pressure from private sector as well, on people stepping up and saying, look, here's how we can do it better, and here's some of the specifics. What are some of the key areas that you think the federal government, including through congressional action, can and should support advancement of the grid? You mentioned storage, but are there some other ideas that maybe come to mind? Well, let me just say this. I, I think one of our biggest problems as a federal government right now, is a, a, the lack of an overall strategy that works. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Like right now, the infrastructure bill, which we'll talk about here in a minute, wants to put charging stations, you know, a vast number of charging stations around the United States. Nobody's asked the question of, can we supply them with energy, right? Or where does that energy come from? And, and that's what I mean by this, this lack of an overall strategy. Now, on the one hand, we closed down the Keystone Pipeline, because it feels good, but the reality of it is we've increased greenhouse gas emissions. And I, I just feel like our infrastructure grid is lacking this overall high 30,000 foot view of what we're trying to accomplish. And I think to do that, we've got to go back to the main goal. What is the main goal? We haven't even really articulated that. To me, the main goal is reducing worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to start asking ourselves if that's the goal, First of all, we should probably agree that that's the goal. But if that's the goal, what are we doing and, and how effective is that? So if we're going to put, and I'll, I'll pick on charging stations for a minute, what is the cost of that and what is the impact of that? And is it this big or is it this big and how much does it cost? And I, and I just feel like that is the problem with our current dialogue is we're just throwing stuff. We hope it sticks against the wall. We're not asking questions about how effective it is and, and how expensive it is and are there better uh, things could move forward. And I'd really love to, to see President Biden come out with this, like, here's the goal. 
And here's this cohesive plan leading towards the goal instead of just parts and pieces that we're throwing at it. Great. Uh, let's dive into the topic that really everybody's talking about right now. Two months ago, the Senate, on a bipartisan basis, was able to pass a, a very robust bipartisan infrastructure spending package, including a number of aspects relating to the energy uh, grid and, and climate-related aspects. How does this package move forward? W why is it getting stalled right now? What's, what's the path ahead on such an important set of investments? Imagine the frustration of being a House Republican right now, right? So we watched this, this negotiation between Republicans and Democrats take place in the Senate, and nobody's picking up the phone and calling House Republicans and saying, what do you need in the bill? We're just expected to, to line up and vote for it, which, quite frankly, I think many of us would have done had we been given that opportunity. Instead, uh, that bill is sent from the Senate over to the House, and it sits and it sits, and it sits without a vote. And then we're told, oh, by the way, this is a twofer. If you get this, you get the $3.5 trillion of spending, which Republicans, I think, to a person oppose. So how are you going to get Republicans to go along with this when, first of all, we don't even get a vote on it? And second, we're told if we vote for this, we're really voting for $5 trillion of spending, much of which we don't agree with. We've got to get this back on track. There, there's a there's vast consensus between Republicans and Democrats for core infrastructure. And, and I think you could even find vast consensus for infrastructure that, that made sense for climate and, and was part of an overall strategy, right? And, and yet we don't even get a vote on it in, in the House. And so unfortunately, the politics is doomed this. What seemed to be a good bipartisan effort has been doomed by politics and as um, frustrated as we are in the House, I can imagine the Senate uh, is, is probably even more frustrated because they work so hard on finding this path forward. And we haven't even been able to vote on it in the House. And I think that's very disappointing to, to Americans. And, and they'd like to see us you know, push that, those politics aside and, and move something forward. Yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what's what's in there that makes part of this really frustrating that it's that it's caught up. Um, probably the aspect we were most enthused to see is the support for grid resiliency, and and you don't need to look back hardly weeks in this country to think about the heat events, the polar vortexes, the named storms, the cyber attacks, and the list goes on. This seemed to be really critical funding to support communities in preparing for these high impact events. Do you have any thoughts around the, the role that that plays in the package or, or how it's important that the federal government get behind supporting moving the resiliency needle forward? I don't think we talk about resiliency enough. Um, I'm, I'm just really pleased that we're talking about it. I'll, I'll tell you, we talked a little bit about my time as mayor. And I can promise you, as a, a mayor of a municipal power city, when that power goes out, People don't care about their rates. They don't care about the type of energy. They care that they've got a, a freezer full of food rotting. They care that they can't open their business. Uh, they care that they can't stay warm because the resiliency has failed. And I do think it's incumbent on us as we, as we talk about this to look around the world. We've got some lessons out there of people who have made mistakes with renewables. If you look at Europe and Germany, who have made mistakes. Uh, it's, to me, it's astounding that, 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 that countries in Europe have cut out nuclear from the equation, you know, one of the best solutions for lowering greenhouse gas emissions, and, and, and now got so heavy into renewables without battery storage that they don't have resiliency uh, in the grid. And I'll come back to, you'll get tired of me saying this, I'll come back to this overall strategy, right? 
why isn't nuclear part of an overall strategy for resiliency in the grid? It, it, it must pay, play a role in this. If I think the experts will tell you we can't get from A to, to, to Z without a core source of power. Thank goodness that nuclear can do this without increasing our greenhouse gas emissions. It can add to that resiliency. And, and yet, in, in, in the same time period that President Biden wants us to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half, we will have cut our nuclear capacity in half. We're going the wrong direction. Well, I think we could take our whole time talking about threats and resiliency related topics, but I want to bring up two because uh, one I think is pertinent to the whole industry and often gets overlooked. And one is so important to the stakeholders here in the West where you and I are. Let's start on the, the one here in the region, which is wildfires, right? We've just had so many devastating wildfires and the role that the electric grid can play to mitigate this is just really an important component. Do you have any thoughts? It seems to be a bipartisan topic in Congress to to get more active in, in trying to address wildfire mitigation. But do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, you'd think it'd be bipartisan. But to be honest, I think we're struggling with issues like forest management and um, and, and doing the work to clear that 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 fuel off the forest floors. I don't have the stat handy in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm getting, I forget more things than I can remember. But but the volume of, of carbon that has come out of these forest fires is staggering, right? It's staggering. And so we've got this vicious, vicious circle. The more carbon coming out of these fires, the, the, the more we're going to see forest drying, right? And, and yet we're not going in and really managing these forests like we know that we can do. And, and that's... I'm actually a chair with Congressman Nagus, a Democrat from Colorado, a, a, a forest fire caucus. And this is, this is, we've got to find some common ground on managing these forests, making better decisions about how they're managed, preventing these fires uh, in the future. And you're absolutely right. To, and I think, you know, to the extent that there's, I hate to say there's a silver lining in it, but the silver lining in it is after spending an entire summer in Utah, unable to see our mountains because of the smoke that came from California and Oregon into our state. People are far more willing to talk about climate uh, than I think they were just six months ago. And I, I don't like that motivation, but the reality of it is between that and the drought that we're experiencing in Utah, I'm finding far more people uh, willing to talk about the, the effects of what's happening and possible solutions. Yeah. The bipartisan package actually had a subtitle uh, providing some funds to increase the cyber capabilities of utilities, in particular, more rural and smaller utilities. So maybe you can just comment briefly around the importance that as we modernize our system, this topic really you know, can't be a total afterthought. Yeah, listen, we can we can build in resiliency like you and I have just talked about. And with a push of a button someplace overseas, one of our enemies can totally kill that resiliency, right? And uh, that, that has to be uh, a mission. If it's not number one, it's certainly high up there. But despite our best efforts to build in a, 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 a stout grid, a grid that can you know, be resilient, the cybersecurity is, is a, seriously, a serious threat and has the ability to undermine our entire country and our stability, I think, at a point, in, a, in a way that's, that's really very scary. Um, right? If somebody really wants to harm us as a country, this is likely where they'll go. And it, it may very well be that our next war is not on someone else's soil, but it's in our, in our grid and our network and cyber attacks. And uh, I think you, you can and should expect vast bipartisan support coming together and figuring out how to protect our country 
um, from from far more than just the discomfort of a cold night, right? It, it could be far more serious than that. You mentioned the the kind of the frustration, if you will, around the bipartisan infrastructure package and how that moved in the Senate and where it sits at the House. Um, and you also mentioned this reconciliation spending package. These two seemed intimately intertwined and at kind of a stalemate. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics uh, between the two packages and the politics and trying to actually get something done right now? Well, the the, the, the dynamics are you've got, a, you know, a, for the most part, and there's a little controversy in this, but let's just say, you know, a, a highly um, bipartisan core infrastructure bill. Um, boy, I'll tell you, in addition to things that we're talking about, broadband in the rural parts of, of, of my district and around the country is something that, that we've really got to address. And it, it, it deals with health care, it deals with uh, education and so many things like that. And, and that's there's just broad consensus on that. Telehealth, broad consensus on that. Broad consensus on roads and bridges and core infrastructure as, a, as an important federal responsibility. And then we, we, we take this huge jump into what we're calling human infrastructure, where there's vast differences of, of opinion about the role of the federal government. I don't think anybody's going to disagree that we've got a problem with child care in the country, but we're going to have a serious discussion about is that the federal government's responsibility and is the federal government really capable of even fixing that um, and spending large amounts of money on that and, and free education and, and, and really changing fundamentally the role of government in a, in a, you know, a flip of a, a switch with one bill. And, and if, you, if you continue to, to say those two are linked, I believe it's going to be impossible to make progress on that core infrastructure because you're saying basically, if you if you if you want core infrastructure, you have to make this huge jump in your political philosophy over here, and we're we're going to to, to insist that they're coupled together and, and that we that we can't talk about them individually, and that's just a place I think many of us can't go. And clearly, Republicans aren't the only ones struggling with this, right? The Democrats are struggling with this. This is why they. They've got the House and Senate presidency. They still can't pass this thing because this is not just Republicans struggling with this, this big jump. And um, it, it really what needs to happen is that the, the political leadership needs to back off this. It's all connected and let us just deal with infrastructure. And uh, I mean, you can imagine any debate in, in Washington if we said, well, we can't do this unless we go over here and do this into a very controversial area, which it's not going to get done. And so coupling the two, it's got to be decoupled, even on the Democrat side alone, or we're not going to make progress on this. And related to some of the energy and climate topics, I would categorize the bipartisan infrastructure set of investments to be maybe a degree removed from direct impact on climate. There are a lot of demonstrations and deployments and, you know, uh, manufacturing capabilities and supply chain uh, topics, but they're not really tackling climate, whereas the portfolio of the, at least the House Democrats draft in the reconciliation bill really tried to head on directly impact a transition towards clean energy and mitigating, you know, you know carbon impacts um, from the country. So what sort of maybe more direct climate-related opportunities do you see with these two things as they're kind of caught in stalemate right now? Yeah, I, I'll tell you what I wish we could do. I wish we could infuse into this. You and I touched on nuclear. Uh, we're not having a debate on the national stage about nuclear, and I wish we could put that into this I'm fine if people say, I don't like nuclear because of A, B, and C. 
fine, I'll go solve A, B, and C, and then let's do nuclear, right? Um, so I, I think nuclear needs to be part of that discussion. I think, t- to be honest, fossil fuels, I, I know this makes people in the climate conversation uh, uncomfortable, but listen, I could reduce more greenhouse gas emissions worldwide using U.S. natural gas in China, India, and Russia than the entire Green New Deal times 10. And so I think we need to have a realistic conversation about, about the role of fossil fuels to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we're not having that conversation. I think we need to have a conversation about U.S. innovation. I don't think we can get to this this goal of reducing worldwide greenhouse gas emissions without sequestration and without direct air capture. China is going to continue to, despite our best efforts here in the United States, right? We can go down to zero and China is going to still emit so much, so many greenhouse gas emissions that will fail in our goals. We've got to figure out how to take this carbon out of the air. And, 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 and I think U.S. innovation can do that. And I think that's what Republicans would like to see is part of these discussions, right? And it feels to us too often like we're trying to take the head off to fix the headache. And, and, uh, and at the same time, like, we think we have some answers. Why can't, our, why can't our solutions be part of the debate? So jobs are such a priority for the administration. They're a priority for, you know, uh, political stripes of all colors. How do you think federal legislative actions, whether they're embedded in these uh, opportunities or or could be elsewhere, um, should impact opportunity in the energy and and climate landscape, especially considering that we're still recovering from the pandemic? We've got to be honest. Look, when when we kill things like the Keystone Pipeline, and then we say to our enemies, produce more oil, we're fooling ourselves, right? We've got to stop demand. It's demand, not the production of this, that's causing the problem. So, so we shut down Keystone Pipeline, but we haven't decreased demand for, for the gas that's coming from that. So we buy it from Russia. We buy it from Venezuela, and um, it, it, where it's produced in, in, in situations that are far less um, green than here in the United States, and we lose jobs doing it. And, and if we're going to save jobs, we've got to step, take a step back, reorganize ourselves and say, OK, how can we impact worldwide greenhouse gas emissions and build U.S. jobs? And the answer, I think, is right in front of us. So the recent IPCC report did not mince words on the threats and impacts from climate and failing to reach key milestones how can the U.S. stay on track? How how can the U.S. be a good global citizen to to keep these discussions going in a productive direction? Well, I, I want to start this conversation with acknowledging that the U.S. has reduced more greenhouse gas emissions over the last decade or dozen years than the next 12 carbon-reducing countries combined. We've made tremendous progress. I think the answer to your question is we've got to push forward on, on in all cylinders. We've got to press forward with U.S. innovation that continues to, to show paths of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We have to push forward with nuclear. We've got to push forward with the right use of fossil fuels in the right ways and um, and, and be willing to, to talk about all of these things if we're going to make progress. So much of what we do doesn't really reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It just feels good. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those just to advocate and say, look, Let's, in addition to feeling good, let's make sure we're actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So similar, COP26 right around the corner, uh, a significant next step for discussions on the global level. What does the U.S. need to come to that meeting in hand to be a, to be a really constructive participant? 
Well, I, I think in addition to our own goals, which I think you'll see from President Biden, is I think we need to bring solutions that impact worldwide. I'm going to keep saying this, worldwide carbon emission, right? We can't go and give China a wink and a nod. Um, we, you know, China certainly has the capabilities uh, to do much better. Now, India may not have the capabilities, but we ought to be standing by their side saying, we'll help you, right? We, we, we're partners with you. We'll, we'll own this with you. Because if we don't, and they continue to emit gases at the rate they're doing, it doesn't matter if we get to zero uh, here in the United States. So I think we have to see ourselves more in, in the light of a worldwide leader, not just changing our own emissions, but changing worldwide emissions and being willing to do what it takes in order to make that happen. So I've got our last question, but is there anything we haven't really been able to cover that you would want to discuss a little bit that's top of mind uh, to you and, and to the country that you think? Well, you know, we, we, we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, transition, boy, but we'd need a whole hour to talk about that. I, I'd just love to leave a little uh, footnote that we've got communities in crisis. I represent a county called Carbon County. You might guess what they do in Carbon County. Emory County, surrounding counties have really taken it on the chin. As in this transition. And what I regret the most is the villainization, not just of fossil fuels, but of the people that for decades and decades and decades have, have, have borne industrial revolution on their back. And I, I think we need to do a better job of reaching out to these communities um, as we make this transition. Yeah. And, and they're not uh, going to be, you know, coding distributed energy resource integration platforms. So that, that is a great thing to bring up. So there's a very interesting project. I think it's just to the west of your district um, that Rocky Mountain Power has deployed. They're part of Berkshire Hathaway Companies, and they have an apartment complex that has on-site solar, on-site storage, and they're leveraging those for the benefits of the grid as, as well as the recipients of those apartments. When you think about really interesting deployments that might get demonstrated and, and offer a new wave of, of innovation and jobs, what sort of thoughts do you have around how we can accelerate that in this country? I, I wish we could transport all of your listeners to Emory County. I mentioned them earlier next to, to Carbon County. They have a research and innovation center where they're exploring molten salt and uh, isotopes that come off those um, that, that have the potential to, to take all nuclear waste to zero. And this is in Emory County, Utah. It's really exciting. And when we talk about helping them transition, like this is a great way to help them. They're on the cusp of something important, but they need a little bit of help to, to, right, to get over the hump. And that is exciting to me. And it doesn't catch the news the, the way it should. It doesn't, it's not getting the federal funding the way that it should. But here you've got a local community uh, who, who traditionally have relied on fossil fuels trying to lead out and doing a fabulous job. And big shout out to them. In, in, in yeah. Yeah, so come to Utah, see some of the leading That's virtual right. power plants and the, the leading edge of molten salt, long duration storage. I love that. All right. So for our last question, how do you feel that our country and all the communities that make it, make it up is prepared for the near and more distant future really related to the energy and climate dynamics that are unfolding out there? What, what do we need to put in motion that will make a, a real big impact? In my opinion, it's more of a thoughtful educating conversation than it is screaming from the housetops uh, that, that the sky is falling. My experience is when you scream from the housetop that the sky is falling, you turn people off from the conversation. But when you have a thoughtful educational dialogue about a person's responsibility to be a good steward, a person's role in, in, in a healthy planet, 
I find everybody willing to engage right and left, uh, progressive, uh, conservative. And I'm hoping that we can turn this just to be take the politics out of it, make a more thoughtful conversation about what each of us can be doing and our own responsibilities. Congressman Curtis, thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you for the leadership and the important work on this topic. Um, we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. Hey, let's do it again. Uh, hope you're hope everybody and all your listeners are well. Come to Utah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs>